Good morning. Um, Geshela is leading a retreat this weekend on working with afflicted minds, uh, afflictive minds, part three. And so I am doing a little bit of a review this morning. Um, not talking specifically, well, certainly not talking about chapter nine, um, but kind of doing a little bit of an overall review on something that I find really interesting uh, that's largely going to be pulling from uh, chapter six. So I hope that this is beneficial and especially can tie into some of the other teachings that we're receiving right now. So let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Letting go of whatever you were doing before this or whatever you will do after by just stabilizing the mind on an object of meditation such as the breath. bringing a sense of focus that will then be able to turn to the teachings. In the world right now, there are many people suffering. And in the news, we certainly see stories of people suffering in natural disasters, such as floods, fires, and a heat wave impacting many parts of our country. Now, in addition to the natural disasters, there are the man-made ones. Certainly climate change is contributing to the natural disasters that we see. And then there are other impacts like war that seems entirely preventable and yet causes great suffering. When we see this type of suffering, especially widespread impacting so many people, perhaps even strangers that we don't seemingly have a connection to, we might have compassion just well up naturally in our heart. And perhaps we haven't even experienced these sorts of tragedies. Maybe we've never lived in this life in an area impacted by war or had to evacuate because of a fire or been impacted by a flood. But when we hear the stories and see photos and videos of the people who are impacted, we clearly see the suffering on their faces. We know that we would not want to experience a situation like that ourselves. So when this compassion comes up in our heart, what do we do with it? 
we might volunteer or make donations if we're able to. Or we might think in the big picture about trying to prevent such things in the future by supporting causes that are dedicated to peace, dedicated to the environment and reducing man-made climate change. But as individuals in our current situation, we're fairly limited. We can have some impact on people on the other side of the world, but we can't single-handedly remove their suffering. And even if we were able to go in person to some of these areas where so many people are suffering, and even if we could do so much to help in that moment, there will be more natural disasters. There will be more wars. And even when there are periods of peace or places where people are thriving and not being impacted so much by these natural disasters, those people are still experiencing aging, sickness, death, grieving of the loss of loved ones, loneliness. And most of those things don't really make the news. But there's still suffering around us. We might be able to see it on the faces of people that we encounter when we're in town running errands or at the store. Our coworkers, our family members, our friends. And even if it doesn't make the news, it is still suffering that should be eliminated. And since this is samsara, all sentient beings are encountering this gross suffering or the more subtle dukkha of the dukkha of change and the dukkha of pervasive conditioning. So while we can aspire in this life to do everything we can to support the well-being of those close to us and even those far away, volunteering, supporting causes and making donations and doing whatever we can to help them, we see that that is always going to be limited by the fact that beings are stuck in cyclic existence experiencing unsatisfactory conditions, including gross suffering again and again. The only way we can truly end their suffering is to help them be completely liberated from samsara. They can enjoy the greatest happiness by attaining Buddhahood. So let's make that firm conviction to work for the benefit of all sentient beings in the most broad way, liberating them from samsara, helping them to attain a state of complete Buddhahood. And seeing that the only way we can do this is if we attain Buddhahood ourselves.
while that goal may still be far away. We can reflect on the teachings as an initial step of transforming our minds so that we can be of greater and greater benefit to all sentient beings. So we've been receiving a lot of different teachings at this summer, but there were two things that really stuck in my mind that I wanted to use this opportunity to tie together. And one is the retreat that we just finished last week, the Chenrezig one-week retreat that Venable Kadra taught. And as part of that one-week retreat, we received some teachings on the seven-point cause and effect method for generating bodhicitta, and a part of that was especially on compassion. And the other ongoing series of teachings that we're receiving right now is from Yeshila on working with afflictive minds, and we're about to have the final segment of that. So thinking about these um, two, I was able to use Shantideva to kind of connect the dots a little bit um, and really, really think about one of the antidotes that I find most helpful when I'm struggling to generate compassion in particular for the people that I find difficult. And that's actually thinking about the fact that they're afflicted at the time. So I thought to share some, share some verses from Shantideva that's really looking at how people are acting in perhaps harmful ways or ways that we at least find uh, disagreeable due to the afflictions, how to use that to cultivate compassion in our own minds and how we can then look at the afflictions in our own mind and how that can lead us to actually harm others. So a lot of this is going to come from chapter six. Some of it comes from other chapters as well in Shantideva. And I found it quite interesting to look back through my notes um, since we've been going through this text now for, for quite a number of years. Um, one thing I'll say is that it can be, so for me, it's helpful to, to think about why difficult people, jerks, enemies, however you want to term them, um, why they're doing what they're doing so that I can have compassion for them. But sometimes we have to even motivate ourselves to want to have compassion, to want to have compassion for that person in particular. I'm not going to talk about that so much. A lot of what we talked about in this past uh, week-long retreat were the benefits of compassion and why we should have compassion. So I'll say that for those of us who are here and had, and had the opportunity to participate in the retreat, I'm sure that those teachings are still fresh in your mind. And for everyone else, they'll be posted online eventually, I think, and then uh, we can all, you can all enjoy those teachings as well. So I won't be focused as much on the why should we have compassion. Um, I hope that most people can refer to something in their mind to see why they might want to have compassion. Um, so when we were talking about having compassion for others, and I've seen this in facilitating SAFE as well, it can be somewhat easy to have compassion for those close to us, our friends and family, loved ones, as long as they're doing what we like when they're pleasing us. And it can be fairly easy to have compassion to strangers on the other side of the world 
especially when they're being impacted by floods and fires and diseases and terrible things like that. But most people have the most difficulty having compassion for those who directly harm them, the people that I find difficult. And sometimes that can be our family and friends as well. And when we see that people have harmed us, when we think, wow, this, this person has hurt me, you know, I want to have revenge. Why should I, why should I have compassion? Um, you know, this, this can be a place that's really difficult for us to work on. And so what I'm sharing here today, based on both um, some of what Venerable Kadra mentioned in the retreat and then what Venerable Children has taught on, for me, this has been really helpful in working with my mind, even in that moment when I am having a disagreement with someone or finding an interaction really difficult. But of course, the only way that I can do that in the moment is by having reflected on them on the cushion, by reflecting on these teachings and hearing these teachings. Um, so I hope by going through this today that it can be a benefit to you um, whenever that next time is that you have a disagreement with someone or a difficult interaction, whether that's in an hour or a week or a month. So Venerable Cadro shared, and, and here I'm working from my notes, I don't take these as transcripts, um, from this retreat this past week, that if we have resistance coming up when we're considering people who have harmed us or harmed others, we can notice that and work to overcome it. So if we just think all of the time that, okay, I'm a very compassionate person, I have compassion for everyone, um, that's not really creating that space to work with our minds. So that's probably not reality. If you are a perfectly compassionate person, I definitely rejoice, and you probably don't need to listen to this. But for most of us, we need to see where those gaps are and intentionally working with it. So the ex explanation that she gives here is really what I find most helpful. They are engaging in those harmful actions due to ignorance and the presence of the afflictions in their mind. We know that afflicted states of mind are unpleasant. That person is unhappy, and they are creating the cause for more suffering and difficulties in the future. So coming back to that, not with the thought of, well, I don't need to get revenge because they're already miserable, but really just seeing, wow, they're, they're suffering. Their suffering is leading to just more suffering. Wouldn't it be wonderful for that suffering to be removed? That, that for me, is, is a helpful hook to grab onto. And Venable Kadra uh, shared something uh, from Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo, that it makes sense to have love for our enemies, wanting them to be happy, because then they would not do harmful negative things. When we are unhappy, angry, stressed, that's when we act in harmful ways. If our enemies were happy, then they would stop doing disagreeable things and be a nice person. So I think most of us know that we want the people around us to be nice people. We like that much better than mean people. And so again, wishing for even those difficult people to have happiness so that they would be nice and kind to those around us, those around them, including us. This is a place where we can kind of try to leverage some of our self-centeredness in a good way to say, wow, I would like to suffer less. Wouldn't it be wonderful then for this person to suffer less so that they're less of an influence on my own suffering. So there are many Shantideva verses that I find very helpful to reflect on um, with this teaching. 
And so I'll be working from the same translation that Venerable Children has been teaching from. And a lot of um, these verses are coming from chapter 6 on patience. So fundamentally, Shantideva was sharing them and, and Venerable Children was teaching on them in the context of, you know, we don't need to get angry. And, you know, that's the first step. And ideally, we can then push into actually having compassion. So for me, I find that helpful that maybe now I can't always generate compassion, but at least let me hold that neutral mind that isn't falling into anger. So the first part of uh, chapter six on fortitude, these are verses uh, three through six. My mind will not experience peace if it fosters painful thoughts of hatred. I shall find no joy or happiness. Unable to sleep, I shall feel unsettled. A master who has hatred is in danger of being killed, even by those who, for their wealth and happiness, depend upon the master's kindness. By it, friends and relatives are disheartened. Though drawn by my generosity, they will not trust me. In brief, there is nobody who lives happily with anger. Hence the enemy, anger, creates sufferings such as these, but whoever assiduously overcomes it finds happiness now and hereafter. So while we can take those verses as very much working with our own minds, thinking about the disadvantages of anger and not wanting to be angry, I find it also helpful to reflect on these when considering the other person's state of mind, that they might be using this harsh speech or, or coming at with me coming at me with what I perceive as a very angry energy, and they're not happy in that situation. They're causing harm, at least I'm perceiving it as that way. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if instead they could overthrow anger? Now, of course, I can't necessarily do that for them. The only thing I can do is work with my own mind, but I can have compassion for them that in that moment, they have this painful state of anger in their mind. And that if I can really maintain that compassion, I can then think, how can I help them? And depending on the situation, that might look very different with our Dharma friends that might be really bringing up some uh, good Dharma advice and remember, um, helping remind them to work with the, their minds. Perhaps if it's someone who's not a practitioner, maybe there's a way we can share some uh, some dharma in very secular, non-Buddhist terms, or maybe it's just wishing them to have happiness and to be free from suffering in our hearts and just doing whatever we can to not make the situation worse. So later in chapter 6, verses uh, 22 to 25, again, talking about... Um, that's not in the right chapter again, talking about anger, and again, focusing on the fact that it is not necessarily the person who's choosing to hurt us, independent of all causes and conditions, but that it's really coming from their anger at the root. So, uh, chapter 6, verse 22. As I do not become angry with great sources of suffering such as jaundice, then why be angry with animate creatures? They, too, are provoked by conditions. Although they are not wished for, these sicknesses arise. And likewise, although they are not wished for, these disturbing conceptions forcibly arise. Without thinking I shall be angry, 
people become angry with no resistance, and without thinking I shall produce myself. Likewise, anger itself is produced. All mistakes that occur, and all the various kinds of wrongdoings, arise through the force of conditions. They do not govern themselves. So here we aspire to set three motivations in the morning. You know, do no harm, be of benefit, and to cultivate bodhicitta. How many of us woke up this morning and thought, well, today I want to be a little bit angry? Anyone? Show of hands. How, it's, let's see, so it's almost 9.30. How many people have been angry so far today? Okay, only one. How many people think they will probably get angry by the end of the day? Right? We, we know this from our own experience, that even if we make a, a firm determination at the beginning of the day, today I will not get angry, at least in my experience, that determination doesn't have a high correlation with what actually happens. I can work with my mind in ways to ideally reduce the likelihood of anger coming, but I can't just will anger to not arise. So what Venerable shared with uh, regards to these verses is, again, looking at that analogy between um, sickness, here talking jaundice, um, and anger, right? An affliction of the body versus an affliction of the mind. So what Venerable taught for this verse is that we are not angry with the causes of suffering, such as illnesses. So why be angry with the sentient beings that we think make us suffer? These things do not necessarily have the intent to make us suffering, to make us suffer. They are simply conditioned phenomena. Of course, we all might, or some of us might get angry with sickness, get angry with the virus or the bacteria. If we're injured, you know, by falling down the stairs, we might be angry with the stairs, but we can also see for ourselves that's a slightly illogical mind, that that's just indulging the anger, that there's really no benefit from that. But yet we sometimes think when we're angry with another person that there is actually some reason to be, that there's some benefit to being angry. But it's just, again, a conditioned phenomena. So she continues, who should be blamed when no one had the motivation to cause suffering? Similarly, what do we get mad at when we stub our toe? Why be angry with sentient beings who do something harmful? They are similarly provoked by conditions. So I've seen in my own mind that I often term, turn to blame and fault in many situations. I might be able to expand my view and not just blame a specific person, but I then start saying, okay, well, what are the causes and conditions that I can blame? And so the key is, again, to, like, again, if I fall down the stairs, maybe I don't blame the stairs. Maybe I would blame the person who left their shoes at the top of the stairs. It's, I can shift the blame much more easily than I can actually just let go of the blame. So if that's our approach, is there anywhere we can shift the blame to? Well, in this case, that's really the, the anger itself. So the person didn't intend to be anger, angry. And, and she taught this, um, again, with regards to these verses in uh, verse 24. Even though we don't plan to become very angry, we become that way. The same goes for jealousy, irritation, etc. 
it seems as if there is no resistance in our mind. It's habit. In the same way, other people who are in a bad mood or anxious do not have the intention to be in that mental state. So as we do not get angry at a disease that arises from causes and conditions, we should not be angry at ourselves or others when unwanted afflictions arise from causes and conditions. We can reflect on a person's face when they are angry. They have no intention to be angry or to treat us poorly. Whatever harm they did to us, they did not have the intention to do so, and we're simply under the influence of other factors. So, when we see this, again, we can focus on the afflictions or what, at fault, what are at fault, and that the person is not choosing to be afflicted. So I find this helpful sometimes if I can hold on to it in the moment, if I'm getting words or uh, reactions that I might perceive as angry, to just keep in mind that, yes, this person, they're not choosing to be angry right now. And they're not, you know, clearly planning what they're doing. They're in an afflicted, uncontrolled state of mind. So... Verse 41, for me, is, is really something that I can try to come back to again and again uh, regarding, regarding thinking about the fact that anger and the other afflictions are really driving these harmful behaviors. If I become angry with the wielder, although I am actually harmed by the stick, then since the perpetrator too is secondary, being in turn incited by hatred— I should be angry with the hatred instead. And Venerable taught on this, that if we are angry at the person wielding the stick, shouldn't we be angry at the hatred that drives that person? We don't get angry at the stick, even though that is what is directly hurting us. We know that the stick is controlled by another. Following that logic, there is no reason to get mad at the person holding the stick, because they are similarly controlled by their anger. When someone criticizes us, we do not get angry at the sound waves. Instead, we are angry at the person who produced them. I would add here, if someone is making, you know, glaring at me or making a face I don't like, you know, I'm not angry at the, you know, the skin cells there or the light rays that, you know, allow me to see what their face looks like. My anger gets directed at the person. But why did they produce the sound waves or make that face. Afflictions. So we should try to have some understanding with other people when they are under the control of the afflictions. And we need to apply this before we are outrageously angry. We can take out situations from the past and start thinking like this using Shantideva's antidotes. We can meditate according to these verses and change how we are looking at those situations. It is much easier to do so when we are sitting quietly without anyone in our face. And we can examine, is the way I am thinking reasonable? So I thought we might try a meditation on this. Again, really um, thinking about this chain between a person's words and perhaps physical actions being driven by their anger and other afflictions and how our response is then mediated by how we're really perceiving that situation. So go ahead and we'll try to get into a good meditation posture. 
and let's take a minute or two to calm the mind and then I'll guide a meditation related to this. So bring to mind a difficult interaction that you had with someone. It might help if it's somewhat fairly recent, but hopefully not so fresh and raw in your mind that you can't actually bring it to mind and focus on the rest of the meditation. So bring something to mind and try to recall what was going on in the situation how you were thinking at the time, what they were saying and doing. And check in with yourself. At the time, in that situation, were you seeing that person as an enemy? Did you have any compassion for them in that moment where perhaps they were saying hurtful words to you?
Now, instead of focusing on your perspective and thoughts in the situation, try to take the shoes of the other person. What was maybe going on in their mind? And while you certainly don't know for sure, we can still imagine their mental state that was driving whatever words and actions you were observing. Perhaps anger, attachment, arrogance, jealousy, greed. And don't just label it. Try to imagine the thoughts and feelings going through their mind and heart during that situation. Based on that mental state, would they have been happy in that moment? While in that moment, it may have seemed as if those thoughts and feelings were the way for them to achieve happiness or to escape from their suffering, if they were in a normal, peaceful state of mind, would they have wanted that afflicted state of mind? You can think for yourself whether you would want to be in that state of mind in an uncontrolled way rather than the more peaceful, neutral state of mind that you can have right now in meditation.
we can reflect that that person is suffering in that situation, but that it's in fact part of a continuum where in the past they had these afflictions be manifest in their mind and that some of the unpleasant situations that they're experiencing in that moment giving rise to the afflictions could be the results of past negative actions, the ripening of karma from non-virtuous actions. Whatever harm they're doing in that situation, such as harsh words, this is then creating the causes for suffering in the future. And by indulging in the afflictions, they're strengthening those seeds so that those afflictions will become manifest again and again in the future as well. So return to thinking about the conflict that you are having with this person. But now try to focus on the suffering that they're experiencing due to the afflictions in their mind, which themselves are due to past causes, and that this moment is leading to future suffering as well. Focusing on that, see if you can have a sense of compassion arise in your heart. Recognizing that that person is not choosing to act in this way, independent of all causes and conditions. But they, they are being driven by their afflictions and karma. So if you can get to that sense of compassion for them, really focus on that single-pointedly.
helpful a little bit? So, of course, so much of what Shantideva is doing in this book is helping us look at our own mind. And we don't get afflicted only in response to difficult people, right? We have afflictions come up in our minds from many causes and conditions. And I know sometimes I see them seemingly come from nowhere that I can directly see in front of me. So while we may want to be of benefit to others, while we may want to really cultivate love and compassion as we recited in the Four Immeasurables, step one is to stop hurting others, to stop harming them with our words and our actions. And so we need to look at the causes for those, which are, of course, our own afflictions. So I wanted to look at a few of the verses that I find helpful um, in addition to the ones in chapter six that really focus on anger, um, but some of the other verses that I find helpful in thinking about working with my mind around other afflictions. So one of these is early on in um, chapter two, actually, and this is going back to even before I moved to the Abbey, um, is this is in a section where Shantideva is talking about um, confession and confession of past negativities. And so this is chapter two, verses 28 through 31. Throughout beginningless cyclic existence, in this life and others, Unknowingly, I committed transgressions and ordered them to be done by others. Overwhelmed by the deception of ignorance, I rejoiced in what was done. But now, seeing these mistakes, from my heart I confess them to the Buddhas. Whatever harmful acts of body, speech, and mind I have done in a disturbed mental state towards the three jewels of refuge, my parents, my spiritual masters, and others, and all the grave wrongs done by me, so thoroughly vile and polluted with an abundance of faults, I openly declare to the guides of the world. So, of course, first we have to be honest with ourselves that we have, in fact, made mistakes in the past. In this life, certainly we can remember some of them, and it's a big part of our practice to purify. And it's difficult to simply wake up in the morning and say, well, I guess it's not difficult to just say to ourselves, today I'm not going to commit any non-virtue whatsoever. Today I will only have perfect virtuous actions. We can make that aspiration, but I know I didn't succeed in doing that yesterday or the day before or the day before that because I have the afflictions in my mind. And as Shantideva points out, one root of that is really ignorance. And so as long as we have ignorance and the other afflictions in our mind, we're going to be making these mistakes, harming others, engaging in negative actions towards even our spiritual teachers, our parents, and the three jewels. So willpower alone is not enough to stop that. And if we see that we do care about others, maybe if we can't cultivate that feeling towards every single sentient being, we can at least do it towards, for instance, our spiritual companions, our teachers, the three jewels, our parents, we can say, I don't want to harm them. So then we need to eliminate the causes or at least reduce them that are leading us to engage in those activities. So 
chapter five in particular on mindfulness, uh, vigilance, as it gets also translated, is of course then talking about this. How do we work with our mind to see when it's going in a direction that we don't find helpful? And so um, verse 34 from chapter five, again, one that I assume everyone thinks about as often as I do. When just as I'm about to act, I see that my mind is tainted with defilement. At such a time, I should remain immovable like a piece of wood. So I come back to this again and again in thinking that I can't just will the afflictions to not arise. They're going to. But if I see that my mind has afflictions in it, I can hopefully stop what I'm doing, keep my mouth closed. That's when the duct tape comes out. And so Venerable gave some clarification around how to interpret this, and this is coming from 2021. If our mind is defiled, we should be like a log. How do we interpret this? A piece of wood isn't suppressed. It is just quiet. If we are about to say something mean or arrogant, for instance, then noticing this, we remain quiet. We don't say it. We don't do a negative action. But of course, how many of us maybe know what's about to come out of our mouth and say it anyways? Okay. Most people. Um, and and what she says, because this is most of our experiences, even if we have that mindfulness to see that something off is there, those words still come out. She says, then we need more energy into mindfulness and introspective awareness so that we care a little bit more about what we say and do. But even having awareness of our motivation having awareness of this desire to not say these harmful things, that's progress. We may not have thought about this at all before we met the Dharma. And so these situations to catch include blaming others, making excuses, taking shortcuts in our work, etc. So we can rejoice with whatever level we're getting to, whether that's simply aspiring to be more aware of our mind or being aware of our mind and aspiring to then not act out the afflictions as much, or having the afflictions mostly under control so that we don't really engage so much in negative speech and, and actions. But wherever we are, we can rejoice that we've made this progress while still saying, okay, and there's more work to be done. So Shantideva then gives us many specific examples just in case it's challenging for us to identify when our mind is afflicted. And I like going through this list, um, again, knowing that I'm not so good at seeing those subtle hints of, oh, there's some anger there. There's some attachment there. There's some jealousy there. I'm not to that great level of, you know, the subtle beginning of the afflictions. Um, it's more, I'm already engaged in a conversation, and I think, huh, this might be divisive speech. So some of the examples he gives, and this is still chapter 5, now verse 48 to 54. Whenever there is attachment in my mind, and whenever there is the desire to be angry, I should not do anything nor say anything, but remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I have distracted thoughts, to wish to the wish to verbally belittle others, feelings of self-importance or self-satisfaction, when I have the attention to describe the faults of others, pretension, and the thought to deceive others, 
whenever I am eager for praise or have the desire to blame others, whenever I have the wish to speak harshly and cause disputes, at all such times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I desire material gain, honor, or fame, whenever I seek attendance or a circle of friends, and when in my mind I wish to be served, at all these times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I have the wish to decrease or to stop working for others and the desire to pursue my welfare alone, if motivated by such thoughts a wish to say something occurs, at these times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I have impatience, laziness, cowardness, shamelessness, or the desire to talk nonsense, if thoughts of partiality arise, at these times too I should remain like a piece of wood. Having in this way examined their minds for disturbing conceptions and for thoughts that strive for meaningless things, the courageous bodhisattvas should hold their minds steady through the application of remedial forces. So that's a, a long list, but at this point, naming many gross examples of things we might do. Again, helpful for me because that's a little bit more the level of my practice. And I see that sometimes those things come up in my mind and, man, I think I'm right I think I have a good reason. And if maybe I could remember this list and remember that Shanti Deva is a lot more wise than I am, maybe I could then remember his advice to close my mouth rather than speak and act out of these motivations. So what Venerable taught on this, again, thinking that for most of us who maybe have very afflicted minds, we would just have to sit in our rooms and do nothing all the time. So she said, when there is attachment or anger in our minds, we should not do or say anything, remaining like a piece of wood. This doesn't mean that we need to be stoic all the time. We just need to stay ourselves and pause when we are afflicted. Do we really need to say, to do or say this? We might feel a certain energy when there is strong anger, arrogance, etc., that we have to say something or else the world will fall apart. Instead, it is the case that when we say things out of being afflicted, that we create negative karma and difficulties for others that we subsequently need to deal with. So she also gave a, a shift here that I found helpful is, you know, when he says like a piece of wood, I was literally thinking, you know, a log like one of our poor Doug fir trees out there. And she gave the example that instead we could be thinking of, you know, okay, I'm going to remain like a piece of wood, you know, not just sprawled on the ground, but like one of our beautiful Kuan Yin statues, the one up here and downstairs made of wood. And so I like that image, that idea of not just, okay, let me be, be silent, but to be at peace and to remember virtue. So I really, I, I found that helpful um, paired with Shantideva's words as a slight shift in tone in my mind. But really, the key here is, is being able to identify those afflictions in our mind, right? That if we've already been overrun by the afflictions, well, then those negative actions, negative words are going to come. And at that point, we've created the karma and we can purify, but we are not headed in the right direction at that point. So again, a plug for Geshe-la's a retreat this weekend, that of course working with the afflictions is a really big topic, which is why we've now had a three-part retreat with him on that. So I hope that um, people can go into this retreat this weekend with that mentality of seeing how important it is to work with the afflictions 
And if you missed parts one and two, that you go back and uh, listen to those really helpful teachings. But so when we want to work with the afflictions, when we've learned some of these antidotes, when we've found the things that work with our minds, then what? So jumping forward a little bit, um, Shantideva doesn't just tell us to remain like a piece of wood. We have some more active advice as well. And chapter seven is about um, uh, enthusiasm or, or joyous effort. And so we can, in fact, have joyous effort in combating the afflictions and working with our mind. It's not just a passive, stoic, I'm a statue approach. So verses um, 60 to 62. If I find myself amidst a crowd of disturbing conceptions, I shall endure them in a thousand ways. Like a lion among foxes, I will not be affected by this disturbing host. Just as men will guard their eyes when great danger and turmoil occur, likewise I shall never be swayed by the disturbances within my mind, even at times of great strife. It would be better for me to be burned, to have my head cut off and to be killed, rather than ever bowing down to those ever-present disturbing conceptions. So Venerable gave some very helpful unpacking on these verses. So this idea of being amidst a crowd of afflictions, this is when one affliction is really just following the next in, in rapid succession, when we see the mind spinning out of control. So when it says that we will endure them, we might think that that means gritting our teeth and bearing it. But instead, we can check in with our feelings and needs. We can talk with the affliction. What does our mind need? We don't need to be attached to respect. We don't need to get angry over the behavior of others. What is important is that we act ethically and follow the guidelines of the wise ones. So for instance, if this is in response to getting criticized, some people will approve and others won't. That's normal. People even criticize the Buddha. So, of course, they will criticize us. So, if we are well-trained, when the afflictions start to come, we can squash them. They flee like a fox near lions. When we are not yet well-trained and just doing our best, we need to stop and see what is going on in our mind and what the antidote is. So, I find this helpful, this approach of turning towards the mind, actually, so when we see that some afflictions are coming up, rather than just trying to suppress it, saying, okay, no, I don't want to be angry. And for me, I find some of these antidotes really helpful, but the antidote of, for instance, turning to say, well, what's the disadvantages of anger? I don't always find that so helpful because that can just feed that, that thought of, well, I don't want to be angry. It's like, well, yes, I don't want to be angry, but I am. So then saying, okay, well, so turning towards the mind, saying, well, what is it that you need right now? And maybe the mind says something silly, like, I need to not be criticized. It's like, okay, why, why is that a need? You know, then working with that. And I find it helpful to turn to that place where I can start to have kind of rational thoughts and use logic um, and really engage with my mind when it's in that afflicted state rather than just trying to, to squeeze it, to crush it. Um, I find that that really doesn't work for me. So this idea of needing to protect ourselves from the afflictions, perhaps more than even protecting ourselves from harm, 
So Venerable talks about this in her commentary to verses 61 and 62. When we are in a threatening situation, people often protect their eyes because losing our eyesight would be very serious. Same with our ears and hearing. So similarly, we should be protecting our mind. Our mind might be berserk, but we can step back, analyze what is happening, and apply the antidotes. So while it might feel like we are completely overwhelmed by the afflictions, at least in an initial part, an initial stage, we have some ability still to work with our minds, to analyze what's happening, and to bring up some antidotes. So that is what we can do to protect ourselves. You know, if, if you're, and I've, I, we've all maybe had versions of this, if you're, you know, walking down the street and you're seeing something kind of concerning going up in front, maybe a group of people yelling at one another, if you're in the middle of them when they're fighting, there might not be a lot you can do. But if you see that something is ahead and you just try to turn around or turn the corner or see if there's somewhere else you can go, then you never even end up in the middle of it and you have a lot more choice and control. So for verse 62, where it's talking about even, you know, better to be killed, so Fenrell addresses how this sounds a little extreme. Is it really better to be killed than to just have a little bit of anger or attachment? Because most of us are at, at the point where we still have plenty of anger and attachment. We can't always tamp down our afflictions. Sometimes they overwhelm us. The key here is when we make excuses for our afflictions, thinking that is not a big deal when we are a little angry or attached. When we have that attitude, we are actually fertilizing them. They stay in our mind and we have accepted them. They become like napweed. But the remedy here isn't being tight, being suspicious of our mind. This is how we often respond, going to the other, the other extreme. So I find this, this helpful, this kind of middle way approach where, again, we're not accepting any level of the affliction, saying, well, it's fine that it's a little bit of anger. That's no big deal. On the other hand, we're not sitting in our room refusing to do anything or talk to anyone because that will make us afflicted, saying, better to die than be afflicted. I won't come to lunch. We don't need to do that. So... Again, I find this helpful of seeing these ways that I think really as individuals, we find how to analyze what's going in our mind and find the right antidotes to apply. So the last thing that I found helpful is actually um, a comment that Venerable Children made talking about a different verse altogether, really about confusion. Because we know that so many of these afflictions are really based on ignorance. And that we can have confusion, we can have doubt come up when we're already a little bit into some of the afflictions. We're already, when we might be spinning a little bit with some anger or some attachment. And I, I looked through my notes because I remembered her saying this and I really wanted to get the, the context right. Um, because I find that even if I can't always tell that I'm afflicted per se, I can catch the thought, well, what do I do? So what she said, and this is regarding uh, chapter 5, verse 24. When we're talking about confusion, it is like a sickness impacting the mind. When we are very sick, we just stay in bed, unable to do much. Confusion similarly renders our mind incapable of doing much virtue. When we are confused, we can't tell the difference between virtue and non-virtue. 
we can't distinguish between afflicted and unafflicted minds. We don't know what to practice and what to abandon. Instead, we go in circles or vacillate between extremes. Instead of thinking, what do I do? We should focus on calming our mind. In a confused state, we are unable to make wholesome decisions. We need to notice when our mind is stuck in confusion so that we recognize that we need to address the confusion first. So for the times that I can't even catch that the affliction is there, but I can start to catch that thought, oh, what, what do I do? That I find that this piece of advice is really helpful in showing me I need to come back to the fact that my mind is probably afflicted. I need to find what that affliction is, address it before I try to actually start doing something. So that's been especially perhaps in difficulties with other people, even if I know that, okay, I can try to have compassion for them, but what do I do? Okay, let me come back and really have that calm mind addressing whatever afflictions are there myself so that then I can actually work from, from that unafflicted mental space. So that's what I wanted to share with you today. I, there's plenty of time if anyone wants to make some comments. I, you can ask questions, but I don't know what answers I would have. Um, so would anyone like to, to share other things about these verses or especially how you maybe work with compassion towards people who are difficult? For me, the important um, point that you brought up was this idea about uh, once you identify affliction in the mind, then to turn it. <laughs> and to get to know the mind and to just try out different things to see what works and what doesn't, that's a, at least for me, that was a long process. And so I just had to keep trying and seeing what would turn the mind from where I was going. And like you've said, if I can identify it sooner rather than later, then I'll have some success in that. Mm -hmm. And so um, even if I, before I really had much success at doing that, just knowing that um, all day long I'm turning my mind to different things, so then that's kind of the basis, and then I'm going to tap in and utilize that to turn the mind when... Uh, my mind gets disturbed when my peace of mind is disturbed. That's kind of the baseline for me. When my peace of mind is disturbed, then I need to apply something. And yeah, so like that. Thank you. I really like that analogy about the piece of wood, how it's not just a dead log, but it can be the beautiful Kuan Yin statue. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, being like a log, it seems so unfulfilling it seems like, yeah, that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. But if you can be stoic and graceful in that moment, that's so much more rewarding. It's kind of like the difference between patience and fortitude. Mm -hmm. Thank you, yeah. And so um, what Minamukunga just said, when you also said that, the thing that came to my mind was really that's kind that idea about... Um, uh, transforming something, that's really kind of the basis of Tantra. So if I can bring a Buddha in my mind, then I'm going to have a different experience. And that's a way to certainly turn the mind, tapping into the power of the Buddhas. 
So what works really well for me when I'm triggered is trying to see how the person that pushes my buttons is also driven by afflictions and is doing that out of suffering or in order to avoid suffering. Um, but I do struggle with that approach whenever I meet an arrogant person that doesn't seem to suffer or that, or the person himself or herself even think not realizing, you know, that, um, there is suffering driving that action. So I was wondering maybe someone could share how they work in that situation or how they, I kind of also feel arrogance then mm -hmm. myself assuming that person, you know, um, is driven by suffering. Um, so yeah, maybe someone could share something they do in that situation. Do you, do you mean specifically in the case of arrogance or any time a person's acting in kind of an upsetting way, but it seems like they're not suffering? Well, when I meet a person that is angry, I it's for me easier to see, well, that suffering driving that that mm -hmm. action. And but if I meet an arrogant person mm -hmm. that doesn't that is himself or herself not realizing that, you know, behind arrogance, there is actually suffering too. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in, in that situation, some, it depends on the type of arrogance, but I just realized that sometimes, um, with a seemingly very confident person, but you know, that kind of confidence that goes more into arrogance, um, in those situations, yeah, it's, it's more difficult for me to tap into that, uh, method of you know seeing the suffering behind the action and it just yeah takes me much longer to also kind of handle my own um reaction so i was just wondering yeah maybe how, how other people um what antidotes other people find in such situations or yeah what comes to my mind first is the fact that certainly there one can trace um, arrogance back to ignorance, right? That if a person genuinely is thinking, I am the greatest thing in the world, well, they're still a sentient an ordinary sentient being, presumably, who um, has the afflictions in their mind. And so maybe that's not the, you know, the dukkha of, of suffering so much as much as the fact that, wow, you know, they are, are ignorant. They have the you know the seeds of all of the afflictions in their mind they still have the seeds of negative karma whatever good things they have going on right now those are impermanent they are going to to face suffering in in the future so maybe so it's different than saying okay their current arrogance is driven by suffering but I, I guess that's how I would look at it is really seeing like, wow, they're still very much in a state of suffering, even if they're not aware of it in that moment. It means they can't actually do it. If they're not aware of it, they can't do anything to create the causes for happiness, to work with their minds so that they're not blindsided by the impermanence and suffering that's going to face, that they're going to face in the future. That would be my thought. Other thoughts? Um, for me in that kind of situation, um, when it's not so apparent what the person's motivation is. And my story in my mind is that that's coming from arrogance, but I don't, I don't know how to check that out unless I talk to the person. And so to stay connected with somebody that my mind wants to distance from and not 
and just label and walk away. So it's helpful to keep engaged, I think, in that way. And I think the other thing is when I can't really identify what the motivation is and I don't have the bandwidth or whatever to stay engaged, then that's the that's the time and and the experience where I learn how to work with my own mind, irregardless. And that's very helpful because it's so easy to keep getting hooked into what's outside of me. But my happiness and my misery is just from here, has nothing to do with anyone else. So that really helps me to develop that further, I think. I agree with what Venerable Jigmei was saying. What came to my mind was, first my thought was, well, I'm probably arrogant, so that's why I'm having this reaction. But then I thought, no, that's not really it. What it is, is there's something within my mind that I need to understand better in order to relate with this person. And I think that one thing I really appreciate in Shantideva is, because you said that person has what, you kind of use the word confidence, self-confidence, but actually what Shantideva is really good at pointing out is it's actually self-importance that makes a person arrogance. It's, it has nothing to do with confidence, really. A, a person who is confident probably wouldn't be arrogant. And that's been helpful for me to have more compassion for people and myself with my own arrogance. <laughs> you know, it's like, where? what's the root of this? You know, and so I think that, I mean coming at it from your, within yourself will give you the tools then to break it down. Venerable. Um, I feel that, you know, this is very beautifully done, especially that you have uh, put in also uh, a uh, appropriate attention in every point of like how do we actually look at how the affliction arises in the other person as well as our side as well. Mm. Thank you for the teaching. Anything else to add? Let's take a minute or two to reflect on something that maybe someone said that you found helpful that you can take with you, and then we'll dedicate. 